So this morning it was uh, Val and myself as usual here at Indie Live Radio, a daytime show, and this morning we're really pleased that we have Ruth Wishart with us. Uh, hello Ruth and thanks very much for coming. Hi there. Hi. The background to this, just tell those of our, our listeners, the background to this is, a, a, I think it's a few weeks ago now, Ruth, you tweeted something um, just drawing attention to the disparity there is between the amount of support there is in Scotland for yes, generally, and especially in younger age groups, um, and compared to the lack of support there is still for it amongst older voters. So. Of course, it depends. My definition of an older voter uh, is now much older than it used to be, but I'm definitely in that category. And and it's still languishing about, I don't know, 30%. Sometimes you see 34%. So you drew attention to that in your tweet and intimated that you might be interested in, you know, talking about that, thinking what, what we do. Um, and I know there was quite a flurry of responses, including at least four um, responses to you from people in Glasgow, pensioners for independence, Kuding, Bao, and myself. So that that was um, that was the background to asking you onto the daytime show. And um, you may have written more than this, but I know there was at least that one article on the, the National where you talked quite you know that, that whole um, situation about. You know, why is it that older voters are still not um, coming around more support for yes? I mean, I was chuckling because you, you came up what I thought was a really good <laughs> phrase for um, our demographic, which you called the, the chronologically gifted. That's us. That's us. That's, definite, that's definitely us. Yeah, so it sort of seemed like the chronologically gifted are the last demographic to need persuading of the value for of independence for Scotland. So, I mean, do you have any, Val and I talk about this and we talk about it quite a lot in pensioners for Indian meetings and things and, you know, ideas get kicked around, but do you get any sense yourself about, uh, you know, what it is that's still there as a, as a block? Well, I think, I mean, I don't think things have changed all that much from 2014 in as much as that demographic tends to be very concerned about security, quite often about financial security and the um, and the nonsense that was spouted about pensions and pension rights and all of that, I think, hit home to a lot of that demographic in, uh, in 2014. And in addition to that, of course, um, we were still, and to a certain extent, still are stumbling about in other financial matters like, the, you know, the issue of the currency and all of that. And I think that tends as it was intended to do I think that tends to frighten older people and um, I'd make two observations of a personal nature though one is that although I'm very much in that demographic um, I'm in the fortunate position of although I'm in receipt of a state pension for which I to which I contributed for a very long number of years although I'm in receipt of a state pension I'm also still a working journalist so I've still got an ability to uh, amplify my income uh, through my through my writing and that puts me in a lot more fortunate position I know than a lot of people in my age group so I don't for a moment underestimate the need to have uh, financial security but two things I would say uh, Marlon one is that um, I think we have to think beyond ourselves everybody has to think beyond ourselves we have to think about the kind of Scotland we're going to bequeath, especially our grandchildren. 
And when I think of all the rights that are being taken away from them in terms of travel and studying abroad, and uh, in, in terms of being beholden to a, a Westminster government that is very specially not looking after their needs, I think we have to think through what we're, I mean, all of us are um, you know, going to be pushing up the daisies sometime in the not ridiculously distant future. So we've, it's, it's incumbent upon us to be, if you like, I mean, to be brutal about it, to be less selfish, and to think about our family and other people's families. And one last thing I would say is that um, I believe, I've thought about this quite a lot because it irritates me that it's my demographic that's still stubbornly of a no persuasion because, you know, I just believe with all my heart that Scotland will be a better country in every possible way when it's an independent country. So I don't want to deprive anybody, whether I know them or not, of what I believe to be a, a good future. But I think it's probably going to be up to us, i.e. us in the same demographic, the same demographic who are yes voters, who are persuaded of Scotland's future as an independent country. I think it's going to have to be us that go out there and make the case to the people in the same age group as ourselves. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's quite ironic really, isn't it, that the people who are most likely to vote for independence, the younger folk are statistically the less likely to go to the polling station and vote, whereas the elder, old, older age group like ourselves are more certain to vote. And yet, statistically, obviously, as a fact that older folk are more risk averse and less likely to support independence. Yet when you go to any big independence meeting, it's a grey hair city, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, there's loads and loads and there's met and like the pensioners for independence, but not only that, there's so many people uh, that support independence that are over 60. It's quite, quite jaw dropping really. Well, without being unkind Val, um... Um, there's probably they've probably got a lot more time in their hands. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That. They're yeah, not. Um, they're not out. Um, they're not so many. Of, there's not so many of them out working all day. There's that's not true. so many of them um, students of a mature nature um, trying to study for exams. And there's not so many of them in the pub working out how many cocktails they can <laughs> down before they get legless. So well, I mean, there's all kinds good. of reasons. There's all kinds yeah. of reasons why young people are, young people have got you know full lives and and also. I mean, I was interested in politics from when I was, um, you know, when I was, you know, I joined my first young uh, political party when I was 14, but that's quite unusual. Most people only start thinking seriously about politics when it starts to impinge seriously on their life choices and chances. And that quite often is when people um, get together with somebody else and have a family and, and then all of these things like affording rent or mortgage and, 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 and making sure the children get decent schooling and all of that that impinges on you usually at a slightly later age and maybe that's part of the reason. Yeah, yeah. That's very true. But um, it, is, it is a thing though, isn't it? It's like, I, I, I just think what you said, said just now about uh, maybe our demographic needs to be, you know, uh, a bit more other regarding, less selfish. Because um, uh, actually we've had it pretty blooming good, mm -hmm. you know. If you think back to, you know, we didn't, we didn't, well, you know, we didn't have to worry about them uh, going to university because we got grants. And actually, I remember I could live off my grant. It wasn't, it wasn't like you ended up in a lot of debt or had to have a, a job. I mean, at least the, at least the people aren't having to pay for their university fees now. But, you know, we did actually. And then jobs, well, I mean, you could be pretty opt optimistic about getting a job back, uh, back way back then. 
Um, and it's not as if our demographic hasn't been, you know, idealistic. I mean, we were idealistic back then. If we were out demonstrating, we were probably demonstrating against apartheid or the Vietnam War or, you know, or capitalism. I think you mentioned that the other day, Ruth, didn't you? You mentioned right. that in your article. Well, it was just that I was I was getting a wee bit weary of being lectured um, about uh, human rights when yeah. I'd spent half my life, it seems, getting rid of shoe leather, um, especially for things like anti-apartheid. And you know, and I was um, I was on the march for women's rights um, long before it was fashionable. Yeah. So, um, you know, I so remember I'm... when I was at university, uh, we organised a picket of the main. I was at Glasgow University here. And uh, I remember we organised a picket of the men's union, uh, as it was in those days, the Glasgow University Union, it was men only, and they, but they used to have strip shows on a Friday every now and again, which was totally beyond belief. So we had this picket and it was on the TV then my mum was a bit scandalised. <laughs> not but, only that, but not only that, but it was only the, it was only the women that were stripping. Oh, hi. All opportunities. There's no male strippers, no Chippendales. <laughs> One thing, your original tweet, I'm looking at it here, was that you've, I've just seen the latest indie stats. It was back in September. It's, it's nearly a month ago now. It's amazing. Uh, just seen the latest indie stats confirming yet again that the biggest stumbling blocks are my own demographic. Anyone up for a campaign to help them get from no to yes? Happy to help organise. And um, as Marlene said, a lot of the pensioners for indie replied. And that is one of the things uh, that do, do Marlene's been involved in de uh, developing leaflets that are targeted specifically at uh, pensioners, you know, given the information about pensions yeah yeah i think i mean that's that's all very valid and valuable but i think uh, i may have mentioned to you when we were chatting on the phone the other day um or rather on on email that um for me the overriding uh the overriding emphasis has to be on the no voters mm -hmm. i mean um i don't mind coming and ranting at people at, at meetings but but people but preaching to the converted is going yeah. to get us nowhere yeah. Um, we've really got to everybody who we all of us know a no voter or maybe a handful of no voters. And a lot of these are in our own age group. Yeah. And that's what we have to concentrate on. We have to get not just information, but we have to get um, civilized persuasion out there. Um, there's no point in battering somebody over the head with them, um, you know, what the hell is wrong with you kind of stuff, because that won't work. But we have to have. Um, we have to be armed with as much information as we can get, which is, uh, which will bring um, comfort over the issues that I've mentioned, like security. And then we have to indulge, we have to initiate conversations with no voters and say to them, look, um, we, we've never agreed about this, but this is why I think it's important for Scotland. Tell me why you think it's not. And, and just get involved in a proper conversation, a yeah. respectful debate about it. Yeah. I was yeah, doing I, that today with a friend, I was out for lunch, and we don't touch on it too often because I know that she, I know that she's a no voter. I only discovered it after the referendum when I said to her, oh my God, two weeks and they've broken all their promises already. But we were discussing it the other day, and so I wasn't ramming it down her throat. I was just sort of outlining the reasons why I'm so uncomfortable with what's happening in Westminster. But I do think that some people cling to this hope that somehow a night on a white, a white charger will ride in and get rid of the Tory government and the UK will be okay again. I think that's 
I think that's the problem with some what, people. What do you think that's that happens amongst older voters, Val? I think people who've been devoted to voting Labour all their lives. Oh, okay. What do you think, Ruth? Well, I was, um, you know, I've um, I've been fairly promiscuous with my votes over the years. I mean, I've, the only thing I've never ever voted is Tory, but I don't think that's a huge surprise to anybody. Um, but for the last few years, I've last few elections, I've voted nationalist. Um, I'm not a, a, a big end nationalist, which is to see, and that's only because I'm not a party person in any sense of that word. Um, I used to vote Labour before that. Um, I once voted Lib Dem because the Labour candidate was, uh, in my view, on the wrong side of an issue that I cared strongly about. But by and large, I've either voted Labour or, or SNP, and um, and I will continue to do so uh, at, at the next election. Though I'm still, um, I'm still unpersuaded. Um, I'm happy to be persuaded, but I'm still unpersuaded that both votes SNP is the best way to maximise the independence vote. But I mean. I guess the jury's out on that, so yeah, I'm thinking yeah. quite hard about that. But but I just feel that um, I just feel that the, the the Westminster issue now is irrelevant. It's not irrelevant in the sense that they're uh, in one sense because obviously the internal market bill is um, designed to to hobble Holyrood and, and all of the devolved administrations and and would be a disaster if it if it gets through for Holyrood and it would be as has been said so often before a power grab. Um, but they're irrelevant in the sense that um, that you've just flagged up. There's, you know, um, Keir Stammer's a decent enough bloke, I think, but uh, the Labour Party's got, you know, not just a mountain to climb, but a, a mountain range to climb. I don't see them coming back um, into power anytime soon. And I don't think, you know, a lot of my um, Labour friends, um, and I still have Labour friends, a lot of my Labour friends will say, but what about solidarity? What about the poor in Liverpool? What about the people who are disenfranchised in London? What about the racism? And and it's not as if in my, as far as I'm concerned, that I've forgotten about any of these things. I just think that, um, to use an old Glasgow phrase, the game's a bogey as far as um, all of that's concerned. I think we just have to. I think I said in that column you, you flagged up that, you know, there's no point in strapping yourself to the bow of the Titanic if it's a handy lifeboat. And, and that's really where I am with that now. I don't, it's not that I've stopped caring about my friends and neighbours and relations in other countries in the UK. It's just that we have got a solution in front of us and I think we have to take it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right actually. I mean I have friends down in in you know in, in living down in England, um uh, not Scots living in England, but English people living in England and in, Labour voters and, and they can get quite um well not maybe angry, but they do have a go at me for as if I've abandoned the ship. And <laughs> I kinda go well, yeah, because the ship's about to, you know, ground sink. itself or sink or whatever. Um, but it's seen as a kind of lack of loyalty somewhere because, you know, they kind of know in the past I've mostly voted Labour. I mean, not now. I mean, I, do, I, I did vote it... Lib Dem, actually, but that was because we got we had Lloyd Jenkins as our MP for a while. So you're a hillhead hill shield then? That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, Luke, going, going back to... Um, yeah, how we how we do this? Because you're right, you know, uh, talking and talking to people who've already decided or support yes, uh, you know, is it's not a waste. Of, it's not a waste because we do need to be, you know, well informed. Um, and you know, I think pensioners for indie group. I mean, there's about I don't know, I think it's eight nine groups around Scotland. And I think you know, if someone out there who's maybe been a no voter or they're a bit swithering, kind of make their mind up. If they if they get curious and they start to look for where to get information, then actually I think they will find 
pensioners for Indy because we're pretty active all over the place. Um, I mean, social media and websites as well. They'll find us and they'll get some good information, but I don't think we're reaching that, that other folk, the ones that, as you say, we've really got to persuade. But there's a, <clears throat> well, there's another avenue here, um, Marlene, which is that um, we've been talking about, at least I've been talking about um, the importance of explaining in detail and, and with, with proper backup, with proper factual backup, why Scotland could be a better and more democratic and more just country. Uh, if it if it if it became independent and became a modern European nation, which I fervently hope happens before I fall off my perch. Yeah, same but, uh, but there's another avenue here, and that is there's a lot of um, left-leaning people um, down south and in uh, Wales and in Northern Ireland who are as appalled as we are about things like Pretty Patel's immigration policies. Now, um, I've, I'm quite involved with a number of, of friends who are um, Europeans who, uh, who, I mean, we're all Europeans, but you know what I mean, who, who migrated to Scotland from mainland mm -hmm. Europe. And um, that's a very important constituency as well, because we have to talk to people about how the Scottish government is welcoming of, of migration, how it consistently says it welcomes migrants, how it's as appalled as anybody about the way that Priti Patel is going about um, reconstructing the, the immigration uh, service. And I haven't heard her speech at the Conservative Virtual Conference this week, but I, it's certainly not going to be sweetness and light. Um, so we have to say to people, look, how about a bit of solidarity with our migrants? How about a bit of solidarity with our refugees? How about a bit of solidarity with the Europeans who've settled here? Let's, let's think about them as well. Yeah, I think the I think the SNP as a party have been very strong in that respect. Like, for example, during the recent crisis in Glasgow, you know, after the incident at the hotel when you know the, you know the the knife attacks, all of the the Glasgow MPs who are all SNP have been incredibly active in trying to pressurise the Home Office to improve the situation and look at hotel. But what really amounts to hotel detention? Um, Alison Foolish, for one, that's her constituency. And they really have been very, very um, proactive on that. The line here is that unless we have control of immigration policy, we can stamp our feet as much as, yeah, as we like. The MPs can stamp their feet as much as they like, yeah. but they haven't they haven't got one eye to do anything about it. And that's that's the bottom line with all of these arguments. Until and unless and until we're making these decisions ourselves, that yeah. it's not going to change. Yeah, that's so true because they can apply pressure, but they don't have the power. I think they are good at letting that community know that we're on their side. At the time when there was a lot of problems about the change in Europe and the status of the EU citizens, every single well, I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's Glasgow Kelvin, because here there's something like 3,000 um, residents in this constituency that are, you know, of are European origin, and every single one of them got a letter from the MSP outlining ways that she could help them and support them, and, and I know for a fact that a lot of folk really appreciate that, so I, I do think that that that, that ability to let folk know that we are more welcoming and less xenophobic it has been given a lot of a lot of energy I think from the Scottish government but but as you say without powers there's no use yeah I think that's true actually I mean I think 
what you said is true. I suppose at the same time, we can't afford to kind of sit back and go, oh, well, okay, so 2014, mm -hmm. I mean, it does look like, when you look to the stats, that quite a lot of those Europeans living in Scotland voted to stay in the UK because they were, you know, nervous uh, that they wanted, to, they wanted everyone to stay in the EU. So I'm that's not sure they, I'm not sure they had a vote in 2014. Yes, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did because yeah. they, they, they didn't have a vote in the Brexit referendum, but they had a vote in the Scottish yeah. referendum. Eh, and they will again if the franchise stays the same, But because a lot of Polish people were, like the, the, the older folk were conned about pensions, a lot of Polish people were told, oh, if you vote yes to independence, you'll be sent back to Poland and so on. And Scotland won't get to stay in the EU, whereas as, as it happens, it's turned out the very opposite, really. Yeah, yeah. So I was just meaning that, you know, we can't afford to kind of take them for granted, given no. that there is that turn that turnaround. Uh, but actually, you know, what puzzles me is, it's just like, well, so much has changed since 2014. I mean, all those promises that were made that have not been kept. Um, you know, in fact, you know, very morning afterwards, you get David Cameron in front of number 10 talking about English votes for English laws, which, which is actually fine. I mean, I never had any argument with that. But the kind of juxtaposition of that compared to, you know, we're all equals in this union. Um, so those promises not made, not kept. Brexit happening, but then not so much Brexit itself, but the way it's been implemented with no attempt at reaching a joint approach with us or Wales or even Northern Ireland. Now we've got Boris. And then behind all that, there's the whole democratic deficit thing. I mean, all those are big negatives for the unionist campaign. Yes, they're also they're also big arguments for us to make um, in a in a positive. I mean, the other side of that coin is that if you hear, as you do constantly, um, Douglas Ross or or Boris Johnson or Ruth Davidson saying it was once in a generation, the promise was yeah. once in a generation. Well. First of all, as we know, that was never in the agreement anyway. That was just a, a, a throwaway line of yeah. Alex Sammons, which perhaps with um, 2020 hindsight, you should have thrown away. But um, it, it wasn't in the agreement at all. So we've got that. So um, we've had three different prime ministers since 2014. We've had Brexit without, as you quite correctly say, Marlene, without any opportunity to feed in in, a, in, a, in in an intelligent and involved way to the negotiations as to what will happen, not least in trade. And um, we've had as uh, the internal market bill, which is um, an, a fairly naked attempt to make sure that Holyrood, um, with, even with its limited powers, will be even more limited in the future. So the landscape has changed yes. in my view beyond all recognition since 2014. And that's a, a, a third point I think we have to make and make it quite forcibly. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and so, so as you say, like flipping those negatives to make them into positives for the India argument. And, you know, to a certain extent, the polling looks like that has been successful by and large. You know, polling now shows that, you know, people trust Scottish government more than the UK government. They think the economy would be better Scottish economy would be better under independence. And they think um, we handle a crisis better. Yeah, yeah, this crisis. I mean, God, you know, wish we didn't have this crisis to handle. But uh, it certainly kind of shows up. Well, it shows up the difference in competence. But I think actually it also shows up the difference in values, the kind of 
values that the First Minister stands there day after day after day, you know, saying, let's look after each other. Um, you know, all, all of that contrasts quite a lot with what you messaging you, you've had, especially recently from Number 10, which well, that's, is, that's if, you, right. if you don't look after the rules, we'll fine you a thousand quid. I know, well, absolutely all of that. But also, it seems to me that... Um, we keep getting told um, that we should be in lockstep as, a, as a, a, we should have a four nation strategy. But I mean, first of all, we've been locked out of lockstep most of the time because we, we only find, we quite often find out at a minute to midnight something that's happening the following morning. But in addition to that, um, it, uh, sometimes it seems to me that what happens uh, in real life is that uh, Boris Johnson's administration follows on what the Scottish uh, government is doing. Yeah. It's not as if we're, we're you know, they're changing their mind to get in bed with us, if, metaphorically, not the other way around. Yeah. But there's another, uh, I watched uh, today, as I do most days, um, the First Minister's briefing, and she said again that she wanted to treat the Scottish electorate as grown-ups, and she went through in some detail the thinking that had been shared with, with the other party leaders in Scotland and also at this morning's Cabinet, and she said... Uh, you know, when we, um, by the time this is broadcast, I know that the, we, we'll have a clearer picture, but she did make a point of going through all the arguments for doing things and, and more specifically, all the arguments for not doing things. And I think that gives people a sense of confidence that we're not just being um, sent tablets of stone yeah. from Holyrood. We're actually being involved, albeit, albeit at a distance from the decision making process. Yeah. To what extent do you think then that the way that the Scottish government, but in particular Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, has had a positive effect on the move towards support for independence, Ruth? Oh, I think I think it's been quite potent. I mean, I I have um, like like many people in the in the yes movement. Um, I'm um, an impatient soul, and that might be a that might be a reflection of my age as much as anything else. You know, I'm wanting I'm wanting independence yesterday morning, if at all possible. But um, being more dispassionate, I think um, Nicola Sturgeon is the kind of you know different kinds of uh, crises and different times, political times, require different qualities in leadership. I mean, I think Alex Salmon did brilliantly to get us to the 2014 um, referendum. And I think he was somebody who was able to lead from the front in, in, in that kind of, um, I'm trying to think of the right word here without... Ebullient. Ebullient. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a million miles away from what I nearly said. But he did very well in getting it in that ebullient fashion of his to that. And I think that was very, very important and very necessary then. We've now got a very serious uh, situation with the pandemic, as we all know. And we need somebody um, who has a different set of qualities. And I think Nicola Sturgeon in many ways embodies these qualities of perhaps more caution sometimes than I'd like, but nevertheless, we need caution, we need balanced judgment, and we need not to um, rush over the cliff until we find out what's on the beach. Yeah. So true. Yeah, yeah. So just going back to, to what you said earlier about, you know, we need to have conversations. Basically, it's we need to have conversations with people who are not yet pers persuaded. Um, one of the things that uh, I've wondered about was trying to set up you know, intergenerational conversations. When, when I say set up, I mean have two people talking to each other but actually record what they're saying. Because it struck me at one point that um, lots of the benefits that an indie Scotland will bring to younger generations 
um, will also have an effect and a beneficial effect on older voters. It's not like it's either or. Uh, no, absolutely. So, so, uh, can, so can you think of, can you think of, do we yeah, get any other ideas to base how no, to have those conversations? Don't don't lo don't lose touch with that idea because I think that's a great idea. And what I would what if we if we if we follow on from your idea, what might be an idea is if you uh, were to initiate a process where all the people who were signed up members of various uh, groups, um, senior citizens for Indy, pensioners for Indy, any other group that, that embraces our age group, and get them all to write a letter to their grandchildren that they can then put. Not only, I mean, it's a letter to their grandchildren, which their grandchildren will see, but they can also put that in the, in the local paper and send letters to the national papers and put it online, especially put it online, yeah. um, put it on, on Twitter, put it on Facebook. Um, Dear Andrew, this is what I'd like you to know about Tomorrow Scotland, you know. Yeah. Dear Ina, this is what I'd like you to know about Tomorrow Scotland. And if everybody does that in an honest kind of way, who's already a convinced yes supporter in our age group and does it to their grandchildren, then I think that's quite a useful way of getting the word around. Yeah, it could work the other way as well, could it? The grandkids. Um, yes, I think it could, and 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 actually, that's that's probably an even better idea. Um, dear grandma, you're not getting the hang of this at all. <laughs> <laughs> dear grandma, dear grandpa, come... what? Dear grandpa, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> Great grandma, stop! Come out of that Zoom meeting and listen to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah the closet, granny. It's time to go. <laughs> I do notice a shift, though, a real shift, and I don't think it's just anecdotal in speaking to people. You know, like I've got friends who I, I avoid in the past. I have avoided discussing politics too much with them. Or if I do, they, they, don't, they don't last long. I don't last long before they say, get off your soapbox. <laughs> so that's obviously a, a, a wee tip that I'm not listening I'm, I'm talking too much but they know that I'm really keen on independence so we do tend to avoid it but I think it's 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 worth just putting in the the occasional little um op open-ended question and and just try, trying to listen to I've lost patience with the occasional and little and all of that I want to <laughs> let's just go for it <laughs> Yeah, but that my, my idea of Marlene, so that's something we're pursuing with the, some of the young Scots for independence, although yes, I, I think, think it hasn't quite come about. I do think, though, that one of the things um, that's held us back from contacting and being in touch with others is the pandemic. Do you know that has been a real... Um, well, I mean, we're, we're recording this, we're recording this conversation on Zoom. Um, yeah. Before the pandemic, I was in a book club, which morphed into a wine club, with with a wee interview, a wee interlude of a quiz club as well. I mean, I mean, we're all of us, you know, six or seven months on, we're all of us reasonably conversant now with with communicating uh, digitally and virtually. It's not ideal, and it's, it's it's absolutely no substitute for sitting down and having a proper blether. But it's what we've got at the moment, yeah. and we've got to use whatever tools we have. And in 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 terms of of Marlene's intergenerational forums. Um, I think it's it's the way to go anyway because you know that's how most young people communicate anyway. So yeah. it's not as if it's, it's not as if it's some strange new substitute as far as they're concerned. It's just a natural way of communication. Yeah, yeah. I think often um, I think there is that danger that you identify, and we're all very conscious of trying to break out from is 
like talking to ourselves, you know, being in Zooms with other yes groups or other independent supporters. And the best way is through other avenues. And I'm thinking you mentioned book clubs, you know, also things like book festivals. I know that's somewhere where I've seen you many times at things like I Write. I very much enjoyed your interview in there. Um, and a lot of the book festivals have moved online. And that's somewhere where... They're all online this year. Yeah. Including my own. Wigton one, yeah. Um, the Wigton one, I've been at a few. Um, I actually was at a, one of the last real life ones I was at a while back was yourself interviewing John Berko, the former speaker. Oh, that yes, was, I think that was the last of the Mohicans before, yeah, the, whole, before the roof fell in. The, yeah, the Mitchell Theatre. So, I, in fact, I asked a question at that. I, th- um, I think you were ready to cut me off because I was going on a bit long, just like the now. I asked, a que- asked him a question. <laughs> Um, I always no comment. It, yeah, I always leave it too late uh, when I'm asking questions. But I thought, right, I'm going to put my hand up straight away. And I got asked, I got the first question, and it was about the way our uh, representatives are treated in Westminster and the sort of lack of respect and and courtesy. And I couldn't believe it. Like I got a huge round of applause. And then when I was outside later, there was constant people coming up to me and saying that was a really good question so it was obviously something that touched a nerve um how do you how do you do you miss that then the contact with the book festivals because I know that that's something I mean I know you're doing it online still but you very much you know you you used to do a lot of excellent interviews I must say at the Edinburgh Book Festival that I write in Glasgow is that something you miss? Everybody misses everybody misses um live book festivals but you know we've just uh, you know it's, for me it's a it's a it's a, a minor inconvenience and it's a and it's a bit of a financial loss as well um but you know compared with the folk whose yeah. livelihoods depend on it it's it's nothing i mean the thing all the authors that i'm interviewing online just now just don't have the same opportunity to to sell their books and they're also involved in a very solitary profession. And, you know, part of the buzz for them is, is getting in front of enthusiastic readers and, yeah. and, and chatting back and forth with them. So they miss that dreadfully as well. We'll get through it. But, I mean, my, I have a wee book festival, which um, uh, at the end of November, and that's going to be virtual this year as well because I've got no choice. And um, it's just my view about it as somebody who runs a small book festival. It's obviously a small one because it's a, it's, it takes place in a village. But my view of it is that it keeps the book festival alive. It keeps the brand alive. It keeps the whole idea of reading and the enjoyment of reading and the interactivity alive. And, you know, the guy who runs the Edinburgh Book Festival was telling me that um, this year um, they'd had, you know, exponentially more people able to tune into the Edinburgh Book Festival than would have been possible in terms of a physical festival. And he also said something which I found fascinating, that there was only five countries in the entire world from whom nobody had come and tuned into the Edinburgh Book Festival. Now that's quite mm-hmm. remarkable. That means that we're spreading, we're spreading a message about Scottish writing and literature to a vastly uh, larger audience than we normally would have. But but it's in, it's interesting what you're saying about like the the book festivals reaching you know the the reach just greatly expanded because it's online. Absolutely. I mean it's the same with our um, uh, pensioners for indie uh, uh, meetings. I mean Glasgow and we've been up. Uh, you know, organising meetings the whole time and usually they take place in a pub in Glasgow City Centre and we go there and there's maybe 20, 25 people regularly, which is not bad going, actually. Um, 
But now we we do it and there's 50, 60, we've had 70 or one of them because we just we just tell everyone on, on the National Pensioners for Indian mailing list. So, you know, it's got some uh, it's got some uh, kind of positive outcomes, and it also means that you know anyone who's a bit disabled and you know isn't going to go to an actual meeting can get to it. I think that's a really important point, Marlene. I think it's especially important in the run up to the uh, May twenty one election because um, even if this hadn't happened to us, even if we were still free to go about as normal, even if we were still free to hold meetings as normal, we can get to an awful lot more people online. We can get um, through, um, uh, you know, through Zoom meetings and and um, through your radio program and all of these. These are really important ways of spreading spreading the word. And and I don't know what life's going to be like six months down the line. Nobody does, but I will be zooming away and tweeting away anyway. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and and so will we. I'm I'm ready. We're, we're, one of the things that we can't do now that we used to do for pensioners for India, we had a someone came up with that came up with the idea that we if we had an entertainment group, we could go into places like residential homes or at least sheltered housing kind of yep. pensioners lunch clubs. We could do a wee concert. So one of our members just ran with that. She just ran with it. She got us organised. So. We did. I think we started off. Was it? Was it the um, Val and I were both involved? Was it the Robert Burns time Val? We did. We, yeah, the f the first lot was all Burns songs. Was all Burns songs, and you know, honestly, so we and recorded some as well. And there's wee videos that that we've got. And sometimes I look at back of them and I go, Oh God, that was a bit off key. Uh, and actually, in the end, I decided I wouldn't sing because my voice is kind of gone these days. So I go and I play my fiddle. And you know, there's a there's a, a someone else there who's a, was playing the small pipes, and actually it was quite good fun. And we were there yeah. quite openly. We we're there as pensioners for Indy, but we weren't there to you know proselytize. Uh, yes. Exactly. We, yeah, and and we, but you know, they then there'd be a pause. They'd have their lunch. We'd have lunch with them, or we'd have a cup of coffee, and we just chat. And yeah. actually, I mean, I don't know. You can never tell what effect things have, but at least they, if nothing else, they presumably thought, well, well, there's a bunch of folk that are quite friendly. Yeah. And it also means that their lingering memory of you is, a, is of a benign yeah. interlude in, the, in their lives and not anything not anything you know alarming in any yeah, way so yeah. no, I think that these are all great ideas I'm I um, with a friend um, in, in 2014 converted my beetle into a yes mobile. And um, my friend and I went round um, everywhere, whether we were invited or not, and went into everywhere, including doctor surgeries and everywhere else, saying, "Hey, have you heard the good news?" And um, <laughs> and and we did every time as well. But we also we also got round a lot of people. Um, we concentrated mainly on the on the island and rural communities. Anyway, yeah. this is all by way of saying that come when the campaign gets up and running properly, I'm hoping to get a fleet of yes mobiles on the road so that we can get round a lot more territory. Well, yeah. That was something that we had hoped to do in our, uh, we talked about doing it, and I know the Dumfries and Galloway yeah. group have done it. Uh, we, in our, we're also members of Yes Glasgow Northwest, and one of the things we wanted to do was raise money and have like a mobile hub, you know, so some Yes groups have like a shop or a premises, but in the city that's you know, far too expensive, can't afford to rent. They've also got a very limited footfall. Yes. You know. yes. So we, the idea was to get a van 
and then put cover it over with all you know the posters that give you the colorful details you know very short sharp information about Scotland's wealth and so on and have that on the outside so if you've got it parked somewhere even if somebody doesn't come inside it which they wouldn't do nowadays anyway but you can drive about from event to event and have you know people can see that that information plus people there giving out leaflets or chatting to folk and that's something that we're hope, still hoping to do once the things loosen off a bit and, yeah um, you know Tell us about your your plan for the fleet of yes mobiles. So tell us about that. Ruth. It's just that I want to get. Um, I mean, I, I've been doing this with with a pal of mine who now lives in Shetland, and she and I will be doing it again. But I'm I'm hoping to persuade some other people who are um, from other parts of the country who are convinced yes supporters to um, to do the same as we're doing. But uh, what I'd like to do this time is because we had a designated route, which obviously didn't take in lots of bits of Scotland. So I. I my idea is that if we have yes mobiles with very specific routes um, going into other. And then I thought um, with the aid of, of from people uh, from um, uh, maybe from the SNP, but certainly from uh, from other other groupings, I'd like to get um, an indication from them where there were places like um, pensioners clubs, lunch clubs, women's guilds. Um, bowling clubs whatever you know anywhere where there's ga gatherings of people and then we could have a more coherent plan of where yeah. we would go in and yeah. speak and so that everybody if you did that uh, for the sake of argument with 15 different routes we could cover a lot of scotland and we could cover a lot of groups yeah so how what did you actually do with your with your car did, did it have posters on the or? Oh, well it had it had the world's biggest yes sign on its bonnet um and then we had um, we got from the Yes campaign, uh, my friend and I, we got all kinds of stuff, you know, pens, yeah. Yes pens, yeah. and yeah, yeah, just all the paraphernalia. And we, we both had Yes bags, and we had both had our wardrobe for the for the for the journey was a, a half a dozen Yes t-shirts and different. So we so we went round and um, we handed these out. We chatted to people. And we asked them how they were planning to vote, and if they said they were planning to vote no, we asked them why they were planning to vote no, just the usual kind of thing, okay. and. Um, we tried very hard to um, we tried very hard to give everything a, a very positive spin, and we didn't have to try very hard because we did, both felt very positively about independence. And um, it was just, uh, and I won't pretend that um, it was all work and no play. You know, we had a lot of a lot of nice meals and a lot of nice pubs along the way, but uh, and I don't know how many people we persuaded um, from no to yes, but it was. I, I don't regret the effort, and I'm certainly looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, I I think that it's that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm sure it had an effect when you did it back in 2014, but it strikes me that that is also going to be fairly well suited to having to campaign in a situation where COVID-19 is still around and, you know, you just have to be cautious around people. Sure, sure. It's not, yes, that know, is going to make me... That's going to that's going to inform, actually, everything we do, um, I have to say, yeah. it, it, you know... Um, when the go button's finally pressed on on a on a, a serious campaign, I think um, that's we're going to have to be very mindful of that. However, that doesn't stop us doing lots of things now, um, because time is short, and the cause is big, and there's an awful lot of people out there that we've got to get to. Yeah, yeah, good. That's maybe a, quite a good note to end on. I think. That's, and that's uh, 
We're Hi, really, Smith. really grateful for you coming on and having a chat to us, um, even if we have gone off piste a bit. But I think you know. it, I think it qualifies more of a more than as a blather, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We, can, in fact, we might even promote it as that. <laughs> <laughs> Blathers. Blathers, yeah, Blathers. Okay, nice to see you both. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. So much. Okay. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. All the bit tangents.